I'm ready. Go ahead and read the thing. All right, I'm going to read the thing. 1911 was a special time for the Parisian art community. Louis Berrault enjoyed still life painting, and he had made a special arrangement with the Louvre to paint their galleries. As a relatively wealthy patron, he had full run of the place and had made it his goal to paint each gallery. He set up his easel, fiddling with the adjustments until it was at just the right height. He prepared his paints, stared at the wall, then set down his brush in a huff, motioning for the nearby guard. I cannot paint the gallery without the portrait, he said. Could you please check with the photographers and see how long they're going to take with it? The Louvre had undertaken the massive task of photographing each of their displayed and archived works, using the most advanced cameras of the time, but each piece needed to be taken to the roof to be photographed, since the new technology did not work well with the interior lights. The guard returned after a few minutes and told the impatient painter that the photographers did not have the portrait, the one that usually hung on the south wall. The painter stared at the guard blankly. Then, where is it? Later that afternoon, the head of the Louvre would announce that the painting, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, had been stolen. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Relative Disaster University's Professor of Renaissance Fraud. And I'm her brother Greg, Relative Disaster Corporation's Chief Executive of Procuring Antiquities Through Larceny. So this is a bonker story. This is an insane story. It's got everything. And <laughs> I just want to uh, say at the outset that people mistreating art or like putting it in places where it can easily damage it gives me such an uncomfortable feeling. I hate it so much. I hate this whole story so much. I see. I see. I don't like it. It's like watching someone pet a kitten in a way the kitten is not happy with. You just, you want it to gotcha. stop. You know it's not good and you want it to stop. So uh, let me give you a brief history. Yes. What is the Mona Lisa, Ella? I've never heard of this work of art. Oh my goodness, Greg, you're in for a treat. It's a very beautiful painting. And I'm not alone because nobody had heard of this until it got stolen. <laughs> so the Mona Lisa is a half-length Renaissance portrait. It was begun around 1505 by Leonardo da Vinci. Have you heard of Leonardo da Vinci? Uh, yeah, he's one of the Ninja Turtles, right? Oh God. I actually have Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks. I bought them special from the, um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Oh, cool. They had them on sale in the gift shop, and it was like one copy, and it was tucked away and getting dusty. And I was like, well, I'd like to know what one of the most incredible geniuses of the human race has to think about things. So, mm. yeah, I'll buy that. I think it was like 20 bucks because it was severely discounted because nobody wanted it. And it's it's huge. The, the book weighs about nine pounds, and it is fascinating stuff. yeah. He was a pretty fascinating guy. <laughs> he was amazing. I mean, he was an engineer, a painter, a sculptor, a everything. Mm. There are a lot of people who view the Mona Lisa as his masterpiece. He certainly produced a lot of masterpieces. Yeah, it's like an unfair amount of masterpieces. He had unlocked the cheat codes to the Italian <laughs> Renaissance level. <laughs> it's real hard to have a favorite. <laughs> 
Uh, so at the time he painted Mona Lisa, he was kind of at a lull in his career. He was between royal patrons, um, and it's actually the only private commission he ever did. I did not know that. That's yeah. Cool. So the subject is a mother of five middle class uh, named Lisa Gerardini. She's also known as Lisa Del Giacondo. Okay. Her husband commissions the portrait, and I hope he didn't put down a deposit because Leonardo never turned it over. Yeah, I did read he that. He just kept it with him. Yep. Yep, he and never actually working turned on it. in the painting. Well, it's well, he never actually finished. That's the thing. True art is never finished. And, and oh, I disagree. He was oh, I disagree as well. But that is the same. <laughs> and he was he was one of those guys who was never completely happy with absolutely everything. It was more along the lines of you know if you gave him a firm deadline, you'd get something. So he works on this thing for close to twelve years at least. Okay. And it's still you know he's still working on it at the time that he dies. And when he dies, he's living in France, and he doesn't leave the painting to Lisa, who is still alive and living in Florence. <laughs> he leaves heck, it to dude? his patron and friend, King Francis, King Francis of France. Yes. yes. So in 1517, the fate painting goes to live in the Appartement de Bain, okay. which is the bathroom complex, <laughs> at Francis's palace in Fontainebleau. Okay. So Francis really loves the Italian Renaissance. He wants a French Renaissance. Yes. He tries to achieve this by buying all the Renaissance paintings in Italy and putting them in his palace. He takes it one step further and then imports Italian Renaissance painters and has them paint pictures for him. Okay. When he dies, he just leaves this enormous art collection, which includes the Mona Lisa. And for the next hundred years, it's used as a decoration in the bathroom suite. <laughs> Hopefully not too close to the steam room. Yep. Oh my god, there's so much that could go wrong here. And there, it, it just kind of stays in the bathroom. Okay. Uh, sometime around 1685, Louis XIV grabs a few things to decorate his new palace at Versailles. And the Mona Lisa was among the paintings he hung in the galleries there. Okay. So he likes it, but it's not his favorite. It's not placed prominently. Sure. And the next king, Louis XV, absolutely hates it. Oh no. Which... I can see because he has very, very specific taste in art. Okay. He likes uh, Fregonard and Boucher. Have you heard of these guys? Yes, of course. They paint these huge, very frothy kind of pastel yeah. pieces of like cherubs and ladies frolicking in gardens. Yeah, very much the Care Bears of the day. <laughs> yeah, that's a great... <laughs> That is a great analogy, and I'm sad I didn't think of that. Uh, so this style is called Rococo, by the way. Yes. Uh, Louis XV cannot get enough Rococo. Loves his Care Bears. So the Mona Lisa is probably the opposite of Rococo and the Care Bears. Yep. Right? It's evocative. It's mysterious. Like at a glance, it's just like a plainly dressed woman sort of smiling into this ambiguous countryside background. Yep. The colors are kind of dark and muddy. It's painted with a technique called sfumato. Okay. Which gives it a very shadowy look. I think that's the Italian word for smoke, but I did not fact check that. Okay. So the whole painting kind of has a mysterious quality, and you have to kind of you have to kind of look at it to get pulled in. It's not something that reaches out and grabs you. Sure. I mean, it grabs us because it's like the most famous painting in Western art for the past hundred years, and it's recognizable to almost everyone exposed to Western art right. or Western advertising. But at this point in 1715, it's just another old-fashioned Renaissance painting of a not-very-naked, yep. not-very-pretty matron, something that Dad liked. So sure. Rococo-loving Louis XV looks at it and says, meh. meh. So Louis XV gives it away, which 
gives me that uncomfortable feeling yep. again. Yep. It goes to it doesn't leave the palace, oh. but it goes to somebody's office. And from there, it's really hard to tell. Like, nobody's really keeping track of it. It just kind of gets passed around and, like, stored and used as decoration in various places. But when the French Revolution begins, it's among the paintings that are gathered up and stored in a warehouse. Okay. So when the revolution is over, Mona Lisa and all the other art that used to be kept at the royal palaces for exclusive use of the kings becomes the property of the new government. Okay. Uh, which it still is, by the way. It's still owned by the French people, the French Republic. Yes. All right. So since it's now a painting that belongs to the people, it's got to go to the People's Public Museum, the Louvre, which is brand new. Okay. Actually, Fragonard, one of our schmaltzy Rococo painters, he survives the revolution. <laughs> and the new government gives him the job of stripping the art from Versailles and sending it to Paris. Okay. To the Louvre. The Louvre is a beautiful building. <laughs> okay but it's dark it's actually great for paintings right yeah but it's really bad for people who want to look at paintings yeah so they put all the nice paintings from the palaces in the louvre and then realize it's too dark and close it down for a couple years i guess so they can like cut windows in the walls okay add some skylights i don't know there's no electricity at this point sure so they're renovating and while the museum's closed down Napoleon Bonaparte happens to see the Mona Lisa. He falls in love, he picks it up, he takes it home to where he's living, which is next door in a palace called the Tuileries. Okay. So Napoleon is the first real super fan of the Mona Lisa. Or maybe he's just like the first person to describe this incredible magnetic property the painting has. Did you read about his nicknames for it? No. They're a little bit on the creepy side. So he calls it the Sphinx of the Occident. Okay. And he refers to the subject as Madame Lisa. Well, that's what Mona means. So Mona in Italian is a polite form of address that originated as Madonna, similar to ma'am, madam, or my lady. Mm -hmm. This becomes Madonna, and when you contract Madonna, it becomes Mona. So it's literally my lady Lisa. I just think it's a little weird that he has it in his bedroom. Yeah, that's super weird. And (laughs) it's like, like, is he going... Good night, Madame Lisa. When I sleep, Madame Lisa watches me. Because she's got that look, too. She's got that look that she's kind of, I don't know, I could interpret that look as kind of sick of Napoleon (laughs) if he's staring at her all day. And her eyes do follow you around. Yes. You're in the same room. She does. Like, she has this very ambiguous gaze. Sure. And I mean, it is a beautiful piece of art. And if you're somebody who appreciates beauty, having a beautiful piece of art hanging on your wall is not the worst thing in the world. No. Just don't be creepy about it. Don't be creepy about it and try and take good care of it. And he does take good care of it. Um, He even returns it to the Louvre when the renovation is done around 1807. She's hung in a daylit gallery, again, not in a place of prominence. Sure. And then in 1809, this is, uh, this also makes me very uncomfortable. She's reframed and she's cleaned. Yeah, I heard about the cleanings. She loses her eyebrows. Yep. She is cleaned very aggressively. Yep. We actually know that she had eyebrows before because people visited and saw her and mentioned that she had beautiful, strong eyebrows. Yeah. And then she's just kind of gently ignored for a while after that cleaning. She's, you know, she's in this place that's not very prominent. She's, you know, she's not a, an attractive painting like we talked about before. Sure. She doesn't reach out and grab you. And you have to understand that 
Although Francis loved the Italian Renaissance, it wasn't always considered an important movement in art history. And Leonardo da Vinci wasn't always considered an important painter. Yeah. So he's really known at this point for the Last Supper fresco, which is reproduced in prints. Yep. But the real charm of the Mona Lisa is the sfumato technique, that smoky technique. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't able to be reproduced in prints until engravings get a little more sophisticated around 1860. Okay. So around the same time, French art critics begin to take an interest in Mona Lisa. And following the discovery and the translation of Leonardo's notebooks. Hey. Thank you, Napoleon, for quote unquote collecting them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not comfortable with people stealing things. And Napoleon did a lot of stealing. See, this is the strangest thing for me, because <laughs> but... <laughs> you're a fan of art, and knowing that the majority of art that hangs in museums at some point has had some shady trading of hands. I guess I'm just not comfortable with people being like, thank goodness for Napoleon. That I'll, I'll second you. And yeah. collecting skills. Yes, collecting <laughs> is the polite way to put it. <laughs> All right, I'll get over it. Anyway, anyway. um... So following the translation of these notebooks, the Victorians develop a real interest in his scientific ideas, and it becomes very fashionable to talk and theorize about him. Okay. So the Mona Lisa is kind of moving up in the Louvre. She gets a better spot in one of the main salons, and people finally start going there, like, just to see the Mona Lisa. Okay. So this is, like, 1900 to 1910. She's, like, a little bit famous. I would say she's, like, C-list at this point. Okay. Some people have heard of her. The vast majority of people have not seen her. On August 22nd, 1911, she shocks the Louvre staff by disappearing. Yeah. And as you say in your story, it does take them a few hours to determine that she hasn't been taken for cleaning or photography. <laughs> She's been taken, just taken. <laughs> She's gone, gone. She's not misplaced. Yeah. So the French press goes absolutely wild with this news. Yes. At this point, they have good prints of the Mona Lisa. I don't know if there's a photograph yet. There might not be. Um, but the thing that gets reproduced in every single newspaper in France is a huge print of the Mona Lisa. The Paris police assign 60 detectives to the case. Yep. I saw and that one. They, <laughs> they are busy bees. They run down leads as far as England and Italy. And the United States. And the United States, yep. yep. They question current and past employees. The Louvre shuts down for a week, so the entire inventory can be checked and searched. Whoa. Yeah, can you imagine? Yes. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So suddenly, this theft is all anyone can talk about. They want to know where she is, who took her. People have these wild theories. There are rewards offered by different people. Yeah. It's just this... It's. One of those stories that really captures the public imagination. So within days, all of Europe is hanging onto the news that this beautiful and important piece is kind of in the wind. It could be anywhere. One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite theories about what happened to it was that it's 1911, so tensions in Europe are rising, mm -hmm. and so some people thought that you know the Kaiser had commissioned somebody to go steal it. I was like, yes. You know, that's a really popular theory. And I think a lot of wealthy guys of the time kind of come under the suspicion. Yeah. They do actually interview J.P. Morgan. Yeah. Who is known to be absolutely crazy about Renaissance art. Yeah. So the first person they really suspect is the poet Apollinaire. Yep. So Guillaume Apollinaire has also has threatened to burn down the Louvre, which, you know, 
that'll get your attention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and his secretary had just stolen a statue from the Egyptian wing of the Louvre. Oh no, what? <laughs> yeah, apparently these guys were just helping themselves and, you know, it does so, look suspect. What I'm getting from this time period is, is mm-hmm. if you liked something at the Louvre, you could just take it home with you. <laughs> I mean, they're really just following Napoleon's example. There you go. He was a collector. He was just yep. collecting. <laughs> I'm not stealing. I'm collecting. <laughs> Just because it's in your museum doesn't mean it's not also in my collection. And then uh, Guillaume Apollinaire, uh, after he was imprisoned, uh, he implicated a friend of his, didn't he? Yeah, this is such a crappy move, and I hope they weren't friends after this, but he (laughs) was in jail. The police were like, come on, give us something. And he's like, my friend Pablo Picasso might have something to do with this. (laughs) And let's get a few things straight. I mean, Picasso was not a nice person. No, and he was known to do some, like, stunts. Yeah. But this was not something that, yeah. No. So he's arrested and let go. They talk to a bunch of American millionaires. They follow down some really crazy leads. And they just can't find anything. They don't have any clues at this point, except that they have a glass case. The glass case that the painting had been in was left in the stairwell. And there was a thumbprint on the glass. Oh, okay. Well, the thumbprint turned out to be the guy who installed it. Yeah. So they didn't, they didn't, um. They didn't think anything of it. Right. It was explainable, I guess. <laughs> or was it? Oh, but of course, the guy who installed it. <laughs> All right. So unfortunately, there is really no elaborate heist to talk about like the no. mechanics of this are very simple this was not a, a mission impossible film this was a dude no. walked up to it pulled it off the wall tucked it under his coat and walked out <laughs> yeah so an italian man in his late 20s vincenzo perugia who had yep. been employed at the louvre i found different jobs that he had done they said he was a handyman or a janitor or a painter not a painting painter a wall painter yeah i got i got as far as he was an employee okay that, that you can was, go with that you know he definitely worked there. Yeah. And at this point, the Louvre staff is not focused on theft as much as it's focused on physical security. So they haven't had okay. any major, like, nobody's tried to rip anything off yet, except for... Except for a statue. The statue, <laughs> which was really more of a collection. So. Yeah. So they're really focused on protecting the artwork from things like people throwing liquids at paintings or throwing rocks at paintings or throwing paint at paintings i don't know uh all three of which actually have happened to the mona lisa but later on so there it's not very well guarded is my point right but it's protected it's protected you know vandalism it's just not protected from somebody literally taking it off the wall right so our friend vincenzo perugia enters the museum the day before in his street clothes spends the night in a closet yep puts on his old uniform and walks out into the shift change around 7 a.m. on August 21st. Yes. So this uniform is a loose white smock. Yep. It really does look like a little girl's dress. Yeah, I've seen pictures. They're they're not very impressive. They're flowy. They're a little flowy, sure. They're uh, <laughs> kind of knee length. <laughs> they're just, they're big. It's not an apron. Yeah. So he goes right to the painting. He knows where it is because he's installed the glass case that it's hanging in. And he waits until the gallery is empty. Now, the museum isn't open yet, so it's not being guarded. Yep. And since he's installed the glass case, 
He knows how to get it off the wall, even though it weighs 200 pounds. Have you seen pictures of this guy? I've yeah, he was. He was a small man. He was not a small man. Yeah. With a huge mustache. Yes, the mustache is impressive. He is stronger than he looks, I guess. He gets it off the wall. (laughs) He takes it to the service stairway. He gets it out of the case, removes the frame. He tucks the Mona Lisa under his smock and walks out of the museum and takes a train home. So it would not fit under a smock worn by someone his size. He says he took off the smock and wrapped it around the painting, tucked it under his arm, and left the Louvre through the same door in which he had entered. Interesting. Yeah. To me, that seems more noticeable than just like putting it down your shirt. But Well, I think it's sort of like the, the two kids in a trench coat trying to get into an R-rated movie kind of situation. If you have a giant square thing protruding from your chest, a giant mm-hmm. chest rectangle, if you will, <laughs> uh, I feel like that's super noticeable. Well, I feel like walking out of a museum with a giant painting-sized bundle under your arm looks suspicious yeah that's a little suspicious but this painting is actually backed with a sheet of wood okay this is not for for those of you thinking that this is like painted on a canvas and you just cut the canvas out of the frame and can roll it up and take it with you no 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 it is painted on a panel made out of poplar which has caused problems through the years as the panel has warped yes yeah so this isn't something you could wrap up or really change the size of too much the Mona Lisa is 21 inches by 30 inches. It is large. So the idea of smuggling it out under under your smock is... I also truly, uh, truly hate to think of the Mona Lisa getting wrapped up and taken home on a train. I am going to take a deep breath. <laughs> oh, then you're really not going to like where he kept it. <laughs> so Perugia thinks of himself as an Italian patriot, and what he's trying to do is repatriate the Mona Lisa to Italy, where he thinks it belongs. Yes. And to his point, the Louvre is full of things that have been, quote-unquote, borrowed from other countries and cultures. Let's say collected. <laughs> yeah. Let's do a Napoleon and just say, it's a collection. It's a yeah. collection. Yeah. The big example that Perugia would have been thinking of was the Egyptian collection, which Napoleon yeah. looted from Egypt, you know, a few years before. And Egypt would still, I think, like those back. Yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot of some sort of shady stuff that goes on in museums, and mm-hmm. uh, many of the people from the originating culture would really like their stuff back. But this is not that case. This is not that case. Perugia thought that the Mona Lisa was an acquisition of Napoleon's. Yes. And he sees Leonardo and Lisa Gerardini as part of Italian history. So he steals the Mona Lisa intending to bring it home. But of course, as we talked about earlier, it's essentially a French painting. It's completed in France. It's given to the French king. And it's, you know, it's stayed in France its entire lifetime. Yeah. So the heat is on. Perugia doesn't dare try and take the Mona Lisa out of the country. Yeah. (laughs) He is living alone in a really dumpy little apartment. He's working odd jobs. He is questioned about the theft twice, and the police search his place. But where was he keeping the painting, Ella? I need to take a deep breath. I'm so sorry. Do you want me to do it? I have I have to get through like another couple sentences that will kind of like lead us there and Oh god. It's just like harder and harder. Okay. <laughs> I feel like your your just anticipation of it is worse than the actual shot. You're right. I just got to rip the band-aid off. I'm just nah. got to do it, man. You I got to. All right. All right. 
So he's never arrested. He's never even seriously looked at, even though they have his fingerprint. And obviously when they search his apartment, the police don't find the painting. Well, the 60 detectives are running down these leads in the art world and interviewing millionaire art collectors and arresting Picasso and so forth. Caruccia just keeps on keeping on in his little one-room apartment. He hobnobs with the Italian expat community. He paints people's living rooms. Is he still working at the Louvre at this point? No, no. He's on to bigger and better things. He's uh, also having a good time grooming his amazing mustache. I have to just say it. I'm sorry. For two years, the Mona Lisa is hanging out in the false bottom of his steamer trunk. Yes, that's right. Oh, I'm going to throw up. Okay. (laughs) It's not... It's not protected by anything. He apparently had wrapped it in a thin sheet of canvas. Yep. But that's it. The Mona Lisa is in the bottom of this dude's steamer trunk. And he's got all his stuff on top of it. Oh, God. Okay. Okay, okay. well, it's you protected can... from light. There you uh, <laughs> In some ways, that's a very safe spot for it. Yep, it's certainly not going to get damaged by the sun. <laughs> Thank you. So in 1913, he figures that uh, enough time has elapsed, it's safe to try and get the painting into Italy. So he moves to Florence again yes. with the Mona Lisa in his with trunk. His trunk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm enjoying this so much more than I should. It hurts so much more. Than oh my god. Just hearing myself okay. say it. Okay. Uh, so he starts telling people in Florence that he has the Mona Lisa and... He is going to return it to Italy. Perugia, he said a lot of stuff about patriotism that he wanted to, you know, make sure that the painting went back to Italy, but he didn't just donate it to an Italian museum. He wanted money. It was a lot of trouble. He had to hang out in the art closet overnight. He had to wrap it up in a smock. He's been hauling it around. It's probably not light, you know? Yeah. He he needs a few few dollars for his trouble. This was when he adopted his pseudonym. (gasps) Oh, I knew we were going to have a pseudonym in there. Wait, is this the part where Perugia starts calling himself Leonardo? Yes. Yes! Oh, I love this. Yeah. Okay. So Perugia starts referring to himself not as Vincenzo, but as Leonardo Perugia. Oh, boy. And he contacts a antiques dealer, Alfredo Geri, who had put an ad in several Italian newspapers that said he is a, quote, buyer at good prices of art objects. Hey, I got an art object for you. (laughs) Obviously. In my trunk under my dirty underwear. Yes. So Vincenzo Perugia gets in touch with him and is like, hey, my name is Leonardo. Oh, God. (laughs) And I have... The Mona Lisa. You know that Mona Lisa that went missing? I have it. Remember the Mona Lisa that got stolen? Me. I'm the one who's got it right now. This guy right here. Leonardo. So, Alfredo Jerry naturally, reaches out to Giovanni Poggi, who's the museum director of the Uffizi in Florence. Yep. And writes back to Leonardo, telling him, I am super interested. I mean, wouldn't you do exactly the same thing? Yes. <laughs> This one's going to hurt you, too, and I'm so sorry for bringing this up. It's all right. So so they arranged to meet in Milan, and Alfredo Geri, Giovanni Poggi, (laughs) and Leonardo, and, and, uh, well, they meet Leonardo in a cafe, and Leonardo says, yeah, I've got the Mona Lisa back in my hotel room. Okay. Well, I was picturing him, like, 
bringing it to the cafe Japanese, and like spilling yeah. coffee on it. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, he just has it in his trunk. So Leonardo gives them his terms, right? He wants the Mona Lisa to be hung in the Uffizi and never given back to France under any circumstances. And so Jerry and and Poggi both say, oh, sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Oh, no, it's better than that. They tell him they'd be happy to hang it in the Uffizi. They thank him for returning it to Italy. They assure him that a reward is on the way. And then they ask if they can take the painting to the museum overnight because the curators are going to be thrilled. So the next day, they go to the hotel room and Leonardo Perugia pulls out his steamer trunk, (laughs) removing the old shirts and shoes that were sitting there. Do you need to do that? (laughs) And then he pulls off the false bottom and there's the Mona Lisa. So Poggi at this point comes up with his cunning plan and he tells he tells him that well we need to authenticate this so can we take it with us and of course leonardo says yeah of course it is meant to go to the Uffizi. you need to take it with you so they take the painting <laughs> and then the cops arrest perugia at at his hotel room like that evening yeah they don't waste any time with this one however they do Put it up in the Uffizi. Sure. Because why wouldn't you? <laughs> well, Perugia is arrested. They're able to authenticate it right away because they have a oh, yeah. stamp on the back of the panel from the Louvre. So it has, you know, they recognize the provenance. Yeah. They confirm with the Louvre that the stamp is correct. So they know they have the real thing. The news that the Mona Lisa is safe. I hope she doesn't smell like old socks. Uh, I mean... <laughs> I think it'd be hard not to. The news that she is safe and she's going to be returned is a sensation. Yes. Um, So Jerry and Poggi get all the glory that Perugia was expecting. And they're interviewed and photographed with the Mona Lisa like a dozen times over the next few weeks. And people really want to see the Mona Lisa because she's super famous now. So people just flood into the Uffizi to see her. It's all over the paper for like weeks and when it goes back to Paris and is rehung at the Louvre it's another huge draw and especially since the trial is going on at this point it's all over the news everybody in Europe wants to see this painting and this publicity I think when the the publicity when it was stolen was a great story but when it's returned the story is just like it takes on a life of its own yeah the Mona Lisa is a household name within a few months oh yeah and there are some who think that the criminal enterprise of Perugia, they think he did not act alone. No, and he says, okay, so the trial is a total circus. This is where we start to really feel for Perugia because he is not yeah. he's not playing at 100% capacity here. He says he has co-conspirators. He says he doesn't. He says he was working with other people. Like, he was friends with a copyist. Yeah. A guy who made his living copying famous paintings and then selling them. So... That one is a little odd because there's the only source for for the the big criminal conspiracy theory here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes from a Hearst journalist, <laughs> right? Who could only talk after the person was dead. Yeah, uh, in 1932, yeah, in the Saturday Evening Post, and it's never corroborated. It's never corroborated, this but it's is... a great story. The story is that Perugia steals the Mona Lisa. The copyist copies it. You know, the two years is like giving it enough time to age and dry and whatever. Yeah. 
So that would mean that the Mona Lisa hanging in the Louvre today is a fake, and the real one is in J.P. Morgan's basement. Well, no, it's still in a steamer trunk somewhere. Please don't. Right? I, I am ill. <laughs> yeah, it was. I wish uh, you could see me. I am bright green. <laughs> Yves Yves Cardon, who was the uh, he was the the forger, mm-hmm. but again, this this comes from like terrible terrible journalism where people could just make up whatever they wanted and there's no corroboration whatsoever no. it's a great story though i do like it's it's a neat story but uh, everything points to him either acting alone or perugia had uh two brothers who had helped him remove the painting from the wall vincenzo and Mc- michele lancelotti mm-hmm but that does not make sense to me. Um, yeah, because then you have three guys like who'd have to keep a secret for two years, hiding in yeah. the supply closet overnight, and then yeah, they're I keeping don't, I don't the secret. Buy that yeah, I just I'm not sure that he needed other people. And I think he did this on the strength of character alone. <laughs> <sighs> oh boy! So he's never repatriated to France for the trial. No, which is good for him. Place in Italy, yeah, which is really good for him. The Italians love him. They're he's like, such, you he's, he's are our hero. folk hero. Yep. Yep. Um, and the trial is, you know, it's not sensational the way the rest of the Mona Lisa story is. Sure. I think because it seems like there's no great loss almost. The paintings yeah. are turned. Like, the paintings you know, you did turned. it, they caught the guy, whatever. Um, and Perugia comes across as very naive and very, like, intensely loyal to Italy. He hates yeah. France. It comes across as sort of a no harm, no foul kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't like... I don't like I it at all. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, the court agrees that you yes. know, he says, I did this to be a patriot. And they're like, eh, probably. And so they sentence him to jail for a year and 15 days. And he serves about anywhere from seven to eight months of that. Yeah. And is released. Well, he's released so he can join the Italian army. Yeah, because World War One, Right, is getting happens. going. Yeah. Yeah. And he does survive. Afterwards, yeah. he changes his name, <laughs> moves back to, to France. <laughs> yeah, Pietro. He becomes Pietro Perugia. Ah, why not? And moves to, moves back to France. Yep. He gets married. He has a daughter named Celestina, which is my new favorite name. That is a fantastic name. Yeah. Nice. And uh, he's a, you know, he's a house painter and a decorator. Until yeah. he dies in 1925. He never steals another painting. Well, he didn't need to. That we know of. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he got the big one. We're good. Right, right. <laughs> um, and the Louvre, I did not know this before I started researching this story. The Louvre never has another painting stolen. No. The Mona Lisa's little trip, little field trip, is the yeah. only field trip any painting takes from the Louvre. The current security of the Mona Lisa? It's pretty impressive, yeah. It is amazing. First of all, it... Currently, it is displayed in a custom-built climate control enclosure, so it never varies from 21 degrees centigrade, Mm -hmm. and the enclosure keeps it at a steady 55% humidity, Mm. which is is just, that's, that's what you want. And the casement is made out of bulletproof glass. Right. And it's set into the wall. It's yes, not like it's hanging set on into the, wall. the wall. Yeah, it's it's in order to take the Mona Lisa from the Louvre again, you would need to take the wall 
Like it's pretty, pretty crazy. Mm. And about 10.2 million people view the Mona Lisa each year. Yep. And those they... are statistics that come from the Louvre that the, the Louvre has to have this whole like, you know, set up for people to view it now because yeah, they line up. It's like going yeah. through airport security. You it's line insane. up and then you like shuffle back and forth and then uh, you get 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And there are some cameras that if you attempt to approach the Mona Lisa with certain types of cameras, they will strongly dissuade you and and you will have to leave. That's so interesting. I had no idea. Well, that's certainly a step up from the bottom of the steamer trunk, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. I feel a little better now that we talked about that. Yeah, exactly. Like it went from, you know, living in the slums of painting to living in like the best apartment ever. This is great. It just had its 500th birthday. Yes, it in, did. Uh, 2017. I feel sad that she does not have eyebrows. Yeah, a lot of the restoration stuff has been has been weird. There was the man who over-aggressively cleaned it. Mm-hmm. All the people who applied coats of varnish to mm-hmm. it. Can we can we go through some of the adventures that the Mona yes. Lisa has been through? Because Let this us is, sidebar. Oh my god. I, I, uh. So the Mona Lisa has been used over time as a way to make a political statement. Sure. Before we get into those, though, one of the most important things was that during World War II, uh, the Mona Lisa was removed from the Louvre and taken to the Ingres Museum in Montauban Mm -hmm. to keep it safe because they knew that when the Nazis took Paris, that that painting would be a huge political win for the Nazi party to be able to display prominently in their headquarters or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And so they made sure that the Louvre got that out of there. And that right. was, that was brilliant. So in 1956, a Bolivian threw a rock at the Mona Lisa with enough force to shatter the glass case that it was in mm-hmm. and rip off some pigment near her left elbow. Oh no. Yep. The reason that it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, the reason that it was protected by glass was because a few years earlier, a man suffering from some form of psychosis claimed to be in love with the painting, had attempted to cut it from its frame with a razor blade, mm. and did succeed in nicking part of it, but it, they were able to repair it with cloth. So they installed bulletproof glass after the rock attack. When the painting went on display to the Tokyo National Museum in 1974, a woman sprayed it with red paint to protest mm. against that museum's inability to provide access for disabled people. Interesting. Fortunately, it was within its casing. You know, the red paint just got on the case. And then the most recent attack uh, was in 2009. A Russian woman had applied for citizenship in France and was denied. And she purchased a ceramic teacup from the Louvre gift shop and threw it as hard as she could at the Mona Lisa, shattering the teacup, but, you know, bulletproof glass. Mm. So the painting was fine. But yeah, she's been through a lot. Yeah. You know, considering that she is one of the most most famous paintings of all time now, painted by who is probably the most famous person from the Italian Renaissance, and she was hugely influential. You can see that there are a lot of uh, paintings that were influenced by the style of the Mona Lisa. There is a theory that we don't have time to get into here called the two Mona Lisa theory, mm. where uh, it is hypothesized that she is actually the second version of this painting 
Right, right, right. And Raphael actually has a drawing, a pencil sketch, of the first version of the painting. And uh, my final sidebar, I just want to talk about one of the true heroes of this piece. Mm. Giovanni Poggi, okay? So yes. he was the he was the curator of the Uffizi. After managing to get the Mona Lisa rounded back up and back to where it needed to be, when Italy entered into the Second World War, Poggi made a plan to protect the artworks that were there in Florence. He claimed in his paperwork that he filed with the Mussolini government that it was to ensure that they remained undamaged by bombs, right? Mm -hmm. In reality, it was because he knew that when the Nazis came, they were going to take everything that wasn't nailed down, and he did not want them, again, to have this culturally important art to prop up their position. Right. So he hid several hundred artworks just in random places, but he knew where all of them were, and he kept all that information in his head. Like where? Are we talking like behind the wallpaper? We're talking the between walls in certain cafes, contained within, as climate controlled as they could get for the time, boxes buried in people's basements. Whoa. He, he went all out to try to protect all this art. That is and wild. then when the war ended, he retrieved all of these pieces, made sure they were back on display, and then retired in 1949 because that was the retirement age, okay? Mm. Mm -hmm. But the community refused to let him retire and said, can you please continue to oversee these works? And so he served as sort of a combination of volunteer and elder statesman for the art community in Florence and finally passed away in 1961, having, no having done good works. Yeah, that is that is a pretty amazing career. I just want to throw a shout out there to Giovanni Poggi, <laughs> who saved the Mona Lisa and a lot of other pieces of art. See, that kind of, good job, that dude. makes me feel good. <laughs> yes, he didn't bury them in somebody's steamer trunk. It's the opposite of the steamer trunk feeling. Yes. I don't know why that oh, bothers man. me so much. I think it's because... I get it. No, because it's like any any tiny, tiny bit of bad luck. And you lose the Mona Lisa forever. You know, mm. it's like it's in your steamer trunk. Great. What happens if you drop your steamer trunk and a splinter from the bottom goes right through the canvas or it gets it, it gets misplaced in transit and winds up floating in the Atlantic Ocean? Like we came so close to losing the Mona Lisa forever. Mm. So it's a minor miracle that we didn't. You know, I mean, I'm I'm with you on this. It makes my skin crawl. I feel better now that we've gotten through it. It's also just <laughs> now that the Mona Lisa is back in the Louvre behind the bulletproof glass. I feel a lot better. <laughs> Did you hear about the insect infestation, though? Oh, uh, I'm so sorry. Are you going to tell me about it, whether I want to hear it or not? <laughs> sure. No, go ahead. So basically, we had talked a little bit before about the poplar panel that the Mona Lisa is is on. Yes. It warps from time to time. And well, so wait, the, wait, wait. It yeah. was also warped from being in the bathroom. Yes. It yes. split because at steam some point is bad for and things. was repaired. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. It did split and they did repair it, which is nice. Basically, what they had to do was they fitted it with an oak frame to keep it from bending. Mm-hmm. And then they replaced that oak frame with a beechwood frame. Mm. And then in the 1970s, they had to replace the beechwood frame 
with a maple wood frame because the beechwood frame was infested with insects. Oh no. Oh no. Yeah. No. And so what they did, the, the insects didn't damage the painting at all. Oh, Greg, uh, I thought just... we were past the part of the show where we were talking. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so sorry. Why do you do this? So to what me? they basically did was they pulled the they pulled the beechwood off, treated everything, and put a new one in with maple. And right now, the maple one has been replaced with a sycamore and metal cross piece. Yeah, let's just let's just go metal. Let's go plastic. Let's well, make this completely inedible to bugs. Because hydrocarbons could leak through it into the painting, and we don't want that either. All right. So, I mean, the Mona Lisa is, like, it's one of the most important Renaissance paintings. It's one of the... Honestly, it's an absolutely fascinating piece of art that you can you could stare at this thing for hours sure. and not decipher everything you'd need to do from the technique used to paint it to the the philosophical question of what is going on in this woman's mind as Leonardo has painted her mm-hmm. because it, it's very enigmatic and it's absolutely captivating and we came this close to losing it, and we didn't. So let's celebrate that, you know? And, hey, advice for time travelers. <laughs> okay, it's 1911. You're hanging out in the Louvre uh, 7 o'clock in the morning. You see a, a, a short, heavily mustachioed Italian guy start striding very confidently out the front door with a smock carrying something that is, you know, painting-sized. Call the gendarmes! <laughs> but wait, if you do that, the Mona Lisa will never be the world's most famous artwork. Oh, dag. Yeah. Okay, okay. I, I say you let him steal it. Let him steal it. You run to his tiny apartment at the Paris Hotel. You make him a climate-controlled invisible box. <laughs> you install it in a place where the police aren't going to find it. You open up his... his steamer trunk. No, you open up his steamer trunk. You write... Vincenzo, please not here. <laughs> Signed a friend. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you steal it from him after he steals it and just put it someplace safe. What do you think? Sure. I mean, somewhere relatively climate controlled. Maybe you become the conspiracy. Maybe you steal it from what him. What if you wait for the Louvre to do their inventory and then just kind of sneak it back into the Louvre? It's in a like a closet or a storeroom or something. You've got a label on it that says unknown Italian Renaissance painter. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right? It's going. in a crate. Right? It's nice and safe. Okay. Uh, and then you just produce it, you know, two years later. I don't know. What do you think? I think, I think your best bet is to... Just prevent it from getting stolen in the first place. You're right. It it will, you know, it maybe it doesn't rise to the level of fame that it rises to after the theft, but then it's not damaged and nothing else goes wrong. And I don't know. I just really enjoy this story. I don't like the the steamer trunk part of it, obviously, but I do like the idea that someone could just walk into a walk into a museum, grab something (laughs) and cause this international yeah fracas <laughs> get imp- picasso arrested <laughs> it's impressive it is impressive in a way um and i'm glad it turned out as well as it did yeah maybe maybe that's the key to it maybe maybe this was a disaster mm-hmm. and somebody time traveled back to make sure 
Because I, I gotta say, Vincenzo's theft of this is a little bit charmed. He's never stopped. He's never really considered a suspect. Nothing bad happens to the painting. Maybe somebody went back and was looking after the painting the whole time. Maybe the time Vincenzo spilled his coffee on it, you know, they were they were there with a towel to catch it before it hit the painting, you know? <laughs> That's my theory. My theory is that the time travelers already went back, and this is the best possible outcome. <laughs> All right. In that case, I salute the time travelers for their care in handling this delicate story. All right. All right. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. And if we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by email to relative.disaster at gmail.com. Or if you'd prefer to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, uh, interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? Well, in continuing the theme of disasters where nobody dies, and in continuing the theme of creative disasters, Yes! I am going to talk about the most interesting Disney movie that never was. On the next Relative Disasters, we are going to be talking about the Kingdom of the Sun. That sounds like an amazing disaster. I can't wait to talk to you about that.